The following live presentation by Rabbi David Aaron is brought to you by Israelite, inspiring a renaissance in Jewish living. To learn more about Israelite, please visit our website at www.israelite.org. Additional contact information is available at the end of this presentation. Thank you for learning with Israelite and enjoy the experience. A few things about Miketz, focusing from chapter 42. Now what we've dealt with until now is this amazing transformation of Yosef as he is bolted into a situation of kingship from a situation of servitude. And it's just this incredible turnaround, something that <clears throat> reminds me of anyways, Purim. And uh, I would not be surprised if you would analyze these stories that they don't in fact represent the beginnings of all our holidays. Right? Because as we saw in the portion with Dina, the bear Moshe brings down various allusions to Hanukkah. And when you look at this story, all of a sudden you see Yosef, who is being paraded around the city, being called the Viceroy, and he is dressed in the kingly garment, something that coordinates with what happened to Mordechai, right, in the story of Purim. And of course, Mordechai is from the family of Rachel also. Right? He's from the tribe of Binyamin, Mordechai. That's his brother. It's very interesting how so much of what's going on here is really reflected in, in the pattern of Jewish history and the pattern of Jewish holidays throughout the year. Okay. Now, what I want to focus on today is the plot, the apparent plot, the orchestration of Yosef in terms of how he relates to his brothers when he meets his brothers. It's very disturbing. Like, what is he doing? Uh, what is the whole point of this thing? And we have to keep in mind that it is Yosef who is the Sikno of Esau. He is considered to be the uh, antidote of Esau. And we asked before, well, why didn't Yaakov finish with Esau? What's missing for Esau? So we developed the idea that still the angel of Esau was able to get Yaakov in his thigh, right? Which is representative of his support. And the Zohar said that this means that the, the resources, the financial resources for Torah study has been damaged. Torah can't be damaged, but it can be weakened by weakening the support of the physical world. And really, it is Yosef that will even fix that. Right? He will even fix the, or he'll begin to fix him. It's not totally fixed, but on a root level, he's able to fix even that because it is Yosef that's going to support Yaakov. It's Yosef that's going to mobilize all the natural resources to support the values of Yaakov and the aspirations of Yaakov. And so, whereas we saw that Yaakov succeeded in overcoming the angel of Esau. We see here that whereas the angel with Yaakov was refusing to continually support Yaakov, I'll give you a blessing, but that's it, let me go, and Yaakov lets him go, we see that Yosef is able to take the forces of Esau and redirect them in consistent support of Yaakov's visions. Right? Now, this is really quite an amazing thing, because really, when you think of it, Pharaoh 
is on the level of, once again, the snake. And the whole idea in Judaism is not only overcoming the snake, but restoring to the snake its ultimate position, which was to be a holy servant. That's what the Midrash says. That really the snake in the Garden of Eden was going to be a holy servant. He was going to contribute to man's um, avoda. And as a Midrash, it says that the snake would have, would have fertilized the ground for him and would have brought around transportation for him. I mean, there's all these very strange um, symbols about the snake in the Midrash, which really sound like modern technology when you really think about what this Midrash was saying in terms of it would bring him stones and it would, all, it would just basically do everything, all the needs of Olam Hazeh, this world, the snake would have done. He would have been a servant of man. But after the sin, we lost this holy servant, so the Midrash says. But that's what Yosef is doing. He's restoring the snake to the position of being a holy servant. Whereas Yaakov succeeds in, 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 in deriving bracha from the snake through his overcoming the snake, snake p- paralleled in the angel of Asa, paralleled in Asaph, right? It is Yosef who has the snake paralleled in Pharaoh, paralleled in Egypt, serving him, right? Serving his needs, contributing to his needs. Now, I was really excited to see the Bear Moshe brings down some sources that supports that Pharaoh is a snake, right? As it says in Yechezkel, chapter 29, 3, it says over there, Hineni Alecha Pharaoh Melech Mitzrayim Hatanim Hagadol. He's referred to as the great serpent. Right? And Tanin is connected to the Napa. It's the same idea. But he even brings another source which we find in Yirmiyahu 31. I believe it's verse 22, that Yermiel calls Egypt the snake. The voice of the Egyptians goes like a snake. So what we have here is, once again, we meet the snake. But this time, the snake is working for us. Right? Mamish working. It is this king, and when we, and we read the whole story, I mean, it's unbelievable. The king takes off his ring does anything he can for Yosef. He sees Yosef as his king, almost. And all of Egypt is serving the needs of Yosef, who is being put there in the position so that his family can come down to Egypt and he can support them. Okay, so we see we've come full, full speed. Right? We've come full turnaround. And it is interesting because the Gemara says that Yosef was let out on Rosh Hashanah. That the day he got out of jail, which was the day that he interpreted to the to the the king, and it's that day that the king made him king, that's Rosh Hashanah. Right? Because what happened in Rosh Hashanah? The first man was created in Rosh Hashanah. Right? So therefore it would make sense that this is the recreation of man prior to sin. Okay? That really it is Yosef who's playing out what Yaakov started, 
We said that Yaakov has the beauty of the first man, and it also said that Yaakov loved Yosef because Ben Zikunim who lo that he was a Ben Zikunim, and one of the understandings of Zikunim is he had his face, right? That Yosef looked like Yaakov, and we were taught that Yaakov looked had the beauty of the first man. That means Yosef has the beauty of the first man. That means that Yosef is playing out. He is completing what Yaakov had begun. Right? He's completing what Yaakov begun. Yaakov had succeeded in overcoming the angel of Esav, overcoming the force of the Nachash, and, and, and soliciting bracha because of his overcoming the Nachash. Now it is Yosef who's going to go a step further, right? And have the Nachash serve him, right? And support Torah. Okay? The snake. Okay. So, we actually see another thing happening in these portions, which is clear. I mean, I have not seen this anywhere, that the nigger speaks in the way it does. That we have to conceptualize the Bible, well, as is the entire theme of Judaism, the ongoing gradual unification of Hashem's name. We had begun in the Garden of Eden with the unification of the name Yud Ke Vav Ke Elohim. And the first man and woman did not succeed in recognizing that in their lives. The purpose of the snake is to separate those two names by harping on an overindulgence, an overrecognition of the implications of the name Elohim, which means you have choice, you have power, you have independent reality, do what you want, there exists conflict between you and the Elohim, because you too can be an Elohim. And to forfeit any recognition of the surrender and the humbleness that one must maintain when they recognize God as a Yud Kevavke. This is the, this is basically the job of the snake. To present a problem, a conflict to the recognition of God's non-duality, God's oneness, and in so doing, offer man a consciousness of that very oneness. Okay. When the first man and woman is thrown out of the Garden of Eden, we do not see those names together. We witness generations built on either an Elohim orientation, which are people who believed in themselves and they are God, or Yud Kevav orientation, which was this nothingness, this surrendering, this, this, this leaving of this world and, and, and complete negation of self. And really, if we would conceptualize this process, you have the name Yud Kevav in unity in the Garden of Eden, and an abrupt separation of the two names. And the whole Bible is, in fact, this gradual bringing closer and closer of those names, right, as they come to the full unification. And, of course, where do we see the full unification? Yaakov begins to say, and Yud Kevavke will be unto me an Elohim. But we will see this climax as it comes forth when Yaakov finally sees his son, what does he do according to Midrash? He says, Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokeinu, Shem Echad. Right? The Midrash says that's when he said it. Right? So the Yichud Hashem is coming closer and closer in these stories. And it's in the Parshiot of Yosef that the oneness of God becomes more and more apparent. How so? 
Because what we see is the name Yud Kei Vav Kei is the name that suggests that everything is in Hashem's hands. And man's choices, right, are insignificant because everything is in God's hands. God decrees. He is the source of being. What will be, will be. Whereas the name Elohim suggests that man is a created being, independent, with independent will. And God wants to be unto man and Elohim, meaning that you make choices and God responds to the choices and there's something called din. Right? There's something called din, which is judgment, which is based on your choice because your choice really made a difference and God will have to respond to that. Now, even though that's a paradox, the paradox of determinism versus free choice, determinism as it's reflected in the name Yud Kevav, and free choice as it's, as it's reflected in the name Elohim, Right. The interesting thing about these partiot is how those two names and those two ideas become interfaith. And we had shown before that it really the whole story starts off with Yaakov sending him from the valley of Hebron. And Rashi said Hebron's not a valley; it's a, it's really a mountain. And the oral tradition says he sent them from the depth of Hebron, which was because of the counsel of the tzaddik who was buried there, Avraham, who was told that your children will be a stranger in a strange land. So you think Yaakov knows what he's doing. Yaakov makes a choice, and yet that choice seems to be feeding into, and the and the Chumash is hinting to that, which it hasn't done in the past, that. He made a choice, and yet that's the decree of God. And then, when he meets his brothers, and the brothers say, let's kill him, and we see what will happen to his dream. So Rashi brings down the oral tradition that Ruach HaKodesh spoke through them. Unintentionally, God had spoken through them, and they said, yeah, we'll kill this guy, and we'll see what will happen to his dream. The oral tradition says, God said that. Through them, we'll see whose plan will come forth, either mine or yours. And that's a little strange. Like, why are people speaking and yet their voice and their decisions completely facilitate God's voice and His decrees? Right? We, say, we see the same thing happening over and over in our Parsha here too. That in 42, verse 28, the brothers, when... They find their money returned to their sack. They say, what is this that Elohim has done to us? It's a little strange. Because what should they have said? I mean, who do you think did this? Does it take too much to think? It would have made more sense for them to immediately suspect this man who had been accusing them and sent them off that he did this as a setup. But they didn't say that they begin to recognize how the choices of man right, is the revealing of the hidden decrees of God. They begin to recognize that by saying, what is this that God has done to us? Now, of course, we need God. They should have said, well, what this man did to us? Right? But they begin to recognize what this man has chosen, right? even though it's his free choice to do that, it plays into the providence and the decree of Hashem. And the Gemara on this place says 
it relates it to a Pasuk in Mishle that says that the foolishness of man is really, man sees his own foolishness as a reflection of his fear of God. It's a very strange Pasuk and it relates it to this Pasuk over here. And the Gemara says, what's it got to do with it? And they say, well, because here they said, look, what is it that Elohim did to us? Now, how does it connect? So the Torah Tamima gives a very nice shot. You see, what happened over here? They said, what did Elohim do to us? What do you mean, what did Elohim do to us? Now, the truth is that what is the foolishness of man that they then regard as the working of God? Which is what Mishlei is saying. What's that got to do with this place? Because what was their foolishness, the Torah Tamimi says? They didn't check their bags before they left. Now, anybody who's in a situation of buying and you bought from someone who you feel is an evil person, who you feel is accusing you, right? Anybody would check their bags before they go. So why didn't they check their bags, right? That's when they recognize this is all from God. That God had made us forget to check our bags before we left. Because if they would have checked their bags before they left, what would they have found? Their money. And they would have immediately brought it back and said, hey, let's what's going on. We found our money in our bags. But now that they went all the way home, right, what are they going to say when they come back? Right? They can say, uh, you know, he'll say, what do you mean? What? You must have checked your bags before you left. Everybody, nobody leaves a store without checking their bags. So, again, we see here a hint that man is recognizing in his choices or in his lack of choices, God is playing through him, right? And really, the choice of man and the decree of God are becoming closer and closer. And it's hard to say either it's this or it's that. Okay. And we will see if you read this carefully... In these parashiyot, we see over and over the decree of God breaking through the choices of man. And that really, the story of Yosef is he is the man who reveals the hidden. Which is what Pharaoh called him, the revealer of the hidden, because he is. He unifies the world of determinism and choice. He is the tzaddik. And what is the tzaddik all about? We mentioned last week that the tzaddik, Rav Ashlik says that the word tzaddik means that he is matzdik. He gets the word tzaddik because what does he do? He is matzdik. He justifies. What does he justify? He justifies the ways of God. Right? He shows that what God has always been doing was for our good. Which is what we will see as the climax line of his career when he finally reveals himself to his brothers, he says, don't worry, you thought for me bad, but God thought for me good. He is the man that is the interfacing, the bridge, the unification. He is the man that represents Shalom. He's able to bring harmony between the choices of man and the decrees of God, even though that is a paradox. Yosef embodies them in a unity. Right? He's able to recognize that unity. And it's that unity that becomes more and more apparent in these parashiyot, which Yaakov himself, when he finally sees his son, and now all that terrible things that was happening transforms into his very blessing, 
all the darkness that he'd experienced that whole time waiting for Yosef and wondering what happened to him transforms into the light. Right? This is more than beating evil, beating darkness. It's transforming the darkness into light. Okay? So with that as an introduction, let's see what Yosef is in fact doing. So we have 42. Well, Yaakov sees that there's no food. I mean, the last chapter ends off with Yosef as the provider for all of Egypt. And everyone comes to Yosef to receive their food. He again becomes that conduit right, through which everyone receives everything. And they see their own fulfillment survival based on their subservience to him. Now, the next scene, beautiful connection, we just left off Yosef, king, right? Royal garments, riches. And it is Yaakov who is now at the verge of hunger and has to send his sons to see Yosef. Now, I want you to appreciate that the Chumash gave us an indication of how Yosef was feeling because that contrast is so blatant, you kind of wonder, doesn't Yosef have any heart to the man? Doesn't he realize that his father's over there? He is in big power. Doesn't he write home? Say to his father, come on down. Look where I am. Everything's wonderful. Right, bring the family down and we'll set you up in the most uh, exquisite hotels down here in Egypt. You know, be my guest. All's on my bill. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. But it says that he had children during the famine. And what did he call his children? One child he called Menashe. He nashani Elohim at kol Amali. That called Beit Avi. Because God is making me forget. This is verse 51 of chapter 41. What I just wanted to show you is the contrast between Yosef's pleasant, tranquil life in Egypt, contrasting Yaakov saying, oh, we're about to starve, we need food, go down there. And by that contrast, we are a little overwhelmed by where is the sensitivity of Yosef? Well, the sensitivity is clarified in the names that he gave his sons. Okay? Because he, number one, says, God is making me forget all my affliction in my father's home. Now, does that mean, oh, I've forgotten it. That's a strange thing to call your son, right? That God is trying to make me, God is making me forget the affliction of my father. Now, the interesting thing is he's recognizing how his labor, right, the labor that he had in his father's house, the affliction, the struggle that he has, is being forgotten from the name Menashe. And there's another child, he calls him Ephraim, he says, because God has made me prosper in the land of my affliction. The Eretz Ani, in the land of my affliction. It is Yosef that recognizes how the darkness actually served the light. How the affliction was actually the source of his blessing. Affliction. Right? 
the labor, the struggle is forgotten. And it is the affliction that actually was the source of his his riches. Now the Malbim says that why did Yosef call his son Minasheh? To remind himself not to forget. Right? That God is making me forget. I don't want to forget. I'm going to call him Minasheh based on God forgetting, causing me to forget my affliction so I won't forget my affliction and I'll recognize what I'll recognize in the name of Ephraim I won't forget the affliction and I'll recognize that the affliction is my bracha. And the, the, the Midrash connects a Pasuk to Yosef that very interesting Pasuk Tov Yelid Miskein V'chacham This is in Kohelis chapter 4. And it says, this is Yosef. Tov yelid, miskein v'chacham. Good is the lad who's a miskein, right? you know, fortunate, problems, afflicted, and yet chacham. Now really, the Midrash says, what does that mean? It's Yosef. Why? What does that have to do with Yosef? Tov yelid, the goodness of the yelid is may sakan. Instead of, don't read miskein, but it's from the danger, from the affliction. His goodness comes from the affliction. Right? And this is hinted in the idea that we have in on Pesach. That on Pesach we eat the matzah and the moror together. That we see that the galut is actually, really, the tra- is going to be transformed into the geula. Not by just beating the galus, but it itself was the conduit. It itself was the servant. It itself was the ultimate source of Geula. And this is all the strength of Yosef. The Yosef sees darkness transform into light for him. Right? This is the unification of Hashem's name. Right? Just as we've learned on a simple level, Shema Yisrael Shem Shem Achad, the Yud Kevavki, which is the name of God as the compassionate one, the lover, and the name Elohim, which is God, the judge who brings harsh decrees, one God. His harsh decrees is a manifestation of his love, is a manifestation of his compassion. This is what Yosef is able to recognize about Hashem in his oneness. So Yosef does not forget his affliction, right? but he recognizes how the affliction has transformed into a source of riches. Okay? Oh, the Midrash says that God is causing me to forget the Torah in Egypt. But, I, but <clears throat> according to Malbim, he's doing this to protect himself from that. Right? That even though he's into everything that's going on, he does not want to forget his father's house. So, we see that he doesn't want to forget his father's house, so why didn't he write home? And the answer to that is in his plot. So, it says that Yaakov sends his sons down, and they go down, and Yosef, Yaakov does not send Yosef. I'm sorry, Binyamin. And the Midrash says, well, he says, lest something terrible should happen. Now, the Midrash says that when a person's on the way, right, when a person's traveling, that's when you're in trouble. Transit is a time of instability and you're in danger and instability. But when you think of it, 
Remember that Yaakov, and there's plenty of hints for it, Yaakov is not exactly sure what happened to Yosef. And Binyamin, as it says, and Yaakov did not send Binyamin, the brother of Yosef. And why would the verse say, this is verse 4, why would it say he didn't send Binyamin, the brother of Yosef? We know that he's the brother of Yosef. But this is the point. It's not just he's not sending another boy, his youngest boy. He doesn't want to send the brother of Yosef. And I think we could find here, whether it's conscious or unconscious, fear in terms of Yaakov's fear for the sons of Rachel from the sons of Leah. Because this is a conflict. The sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel are in conflict. It's Yehuda and Yosef will have to meet Vayigash. They have to work it out. Right? And so, he's frightened to let Binyanun go. I'm sure he's frightened to even take a chance of losing the last son of Rachel. Because Rachel means something in the entire play over here, in the balancing of forces of what makes Am Yisrael Am Yisrael. So they go, and Yosef is the ruler of the land, He's the provider of the land to the entire, and they come, and sure enough, there they are bowing in front of Yosef. Now we're at verse 7. V'yar Yosef Echiv, Yosef saw his brothers, V'yikarim, and he recognized them. V'yitnakir alehem. And the question is, what does it mean, V'yitnakir alehem? So Rashi says that Yitnakir means he spoke harshly to them. The Ramban disagrees with that because he sees no no hint in the word nakir having anything to do with being harsh. But Yitnakir simply means he he concealed himself. He made himself not recognizable. Now, what does that remind you of? I mean, when you're reading Chumash. We'll always read to see if something's happening here and it seems to correlate to something you once read. Because someone else disguised themselves. Yaakov. So we're seeing a similar kind of thing of someone dressed up or hidden or pretending. Okay? He the very Tom Kashot and he spoke to them very harshly. Where did you come from? We came from Kanan. He recognizes them. They do not recognize him. And Yosef remember the dream that he dreamed about them. And he said, You are spies. You have come to spy the land. Now, we are overwhelmed. What is Yosef doing? I mean, he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. The verse says he remembers his dream and in the same verse he says and accuses your spies. Now what does that mean? What does one have to do with the other? He remembers his dreams and he accuses them of spies. What does one have to do with the other? That's in the same passage. And what is he doing? Why does he simply say, oh, hey, they're bowing. It just said they bowed down to him, right? 
So isn't that the end of it? They bowed down to him, so the dream's fulfilled. Ah, the dream's not complete. He remembered his dream, and in his dream, what did he see? He has two dreams. He sees 11 sheaves, which is the 11 sons. So who's missing? Binyamin. I've got to get Binyamin down here. And he had a second dream. Ah, the sun and the moon, which means also Yaakov will have to come. So, the Ramban says here that really, this is when he remembered his dream, and that's when he realized that now it is up to him to bring about the fulfillment of his dream. Now, isn't that a little weird? But this is the Ramban's approach. Rav Desler brings down the Rambam and says, and look at the incredible compassion that he has for his brothers because he sees them and even though he's about to break down and cry, right, he holds himself back from this emotional moment because he feels Mesirat Nefesh. He feels an incredible deliverance of soul to the hands of God that he must bring about the fulfillment of his dream. That doesn't make any sense. But it does if you understand that all this is the beginning of the interfacing of the two names of Hashem. That it is Yosef that recognizes that he had a dream. He sees this as prophecy. He recognizes that this must be the fulfillment of God's plan and decree. The Jewish people have to go to the exile. What? You don't think that they knew the old tradition that they got from the great-grandfather, Avraham, right? A stranger you will be in a strange land. Of course he knows this. So here we see man making choices to fulfill God's plan. Now, what do you have to make choices if it's God's plan? Well, you can't. God will make it happen. So he saw his dreams. So good, I guess that's the beginning, I, I guess I'll, you know. But it's interesting here, you see this interesting play going on. He recognizes his dream, which is the decree of God, right? So he makes a choice in order to fulfill the decree of God, like God to fulfill his decree. Now, is it decree of God or is it man's choice? It's more than both. More than both. It is Yosef that's choosing to do the will of God. Now, remember, it was Yaakov who also disguised himself as Esau and with the power of manipulation went into his father, Yitzchak. He made a choice and what did God do? We learned over there that God was an accomplice. Right? We saw... And various psukim hints to God is an accomplice to man's choices. Now we see man is an accomplice to God's decrees. And this is bringing those two worlds together. Right? Bringing those two worlds together. Yosef is the man who reveals the hidden. Through the revealed choices, right, he makes the revealed choices the revelation of the hidden decrees. This is all part of bringing those names together. So now what does he do? 
First of all, we learn over here that he is going to bring about his dream. But what else does he do over here? Very strange, his whole, the whole orchestration of it. He says, well, you're spies. And he says, listen, the only way I can know is if you bring back Binyamin. Right? Bring me back that other son that's there. And the whole way through, the brothers are beginning to feel, oh, here it comes. <laughs> the payoff. Right? Wonderful, right? Look what we did to our brother Yosef. And now, look what's happening to us. And he throws them in jail for three days. I right? throws them in a pit just like they threw him in a pit. And the Alshik points out the parallel between what Yosef does to them and what they did to Yosef. First of all, they hated him. They spoke harshly towards him. So he spoke harshly about them. It says, and he spoke kashot, harsh. They attempted to kill him. So he seeks pretenses and pretexts to accuse them so that they should be deserving of death. And everything he does is what's called mida keneged mida. Right? A measure for measure. They threw him in a pit. He throws them into a pit. They sold him as a slave and took money for him. So what he does is because they sold him as a slave, he returns their money to their sack so he can accuse them of thieves. Right? And have the right to the money. And the Elshik says they cause Yaakov grief. So he causes them grief by giving them the silver cup. Now, it's a little strange because it's very nice of the Elshik to say, and all this is mida keneged mida. All this is attribute against attribute, but our first impression would be this is called revenge, right? We would call this revenge. And especially it's set up so perfectly, I'm going to get you for everything you did to me and my father, I'm going to do the same thing to you. And yet what we would call revenge, it's clear that God is helping this whole plot through. It's clear that this plot is actually bringing about, and we're wondering when we read this, what's going on? Now, isn't this interesting? Because he's dressed up like Esau. He's orchestrating. He's manipulating. This is the talent of Esau. Yosef is acting like Esau. And yet, why is Yosef doing it? If you say, well, he wants to fulfill God's plan, that's one thing, but it's not enough. There's something else he wants to do. So one of the ideas is that he's doing need to connect need to so they won't have to atone for this in Olam Haba. That they will get their punishment in Olam Hazit. But then we ask, who is Yosef to play God? Right? But that's the moment of interfacing. That man, this man, feels comfortable enough to be willing to make a choice which he is sure is the decree of God. Right? And we see the decree of God, the human choice, almost completely intertwined, mutually inclusive. And he also wants to bring about tshuva. 
Because we know when the fundamental principles in tshuva, complete tshuva is only when you're put in the exact same situation. And that's what Yosef is doing. He will put his brothers in the exact same situation that they were in before. A son of Rachel, they didn't give their life up to save a son of Rachel. Now he wants to see. With Binyamin, given the opportunity to give their life up for the son of Rachel. So actually what he's trying to do is effectualize tshuva in them. And another thing he wants to do is he wants to bring about peace. Because how could he be sure that if he reveals himself to his brothers, that they will not forever feel rotten about themselves, and they will never feel that he could ever forgive them. So, one of the approaches is he's trying to, he's putting them into a situation where they're able to do complete tshuva so they can forgive themselves and he can bear testimony that I see that you did tshuva, I know you did tshuva, and I love you still, and I hope that you recognize that I love you and you can love me. So what is he really doing in this whole orchestration? Yosef is using the talents of Esau to bring about shalom and tshuva. Something which Yaakov did not succeed in doing. Yaakov uses the talent of Esau to beat Esau. Right? But that does not bring shalom. Nor does that bring tshuva to Esau. And so it is Yosef that is using Esau-like manners to bring about shalom and tshuva from people who themselves acted like an Esau. Because remember, the brothers hated Yosef like Esau hates Yaakov. Right? And therefore, we're seeing that it is Yosef that is fixing the talents of Esau. Right? He takes it a step further, something that Yaakov was not able to do. So, we'll see again in chapter 43, they come back, they found all their money in their bags, they're disturbed, they go to their father, they say we've got to go back there with Binyamin, their father says, no chance, I'm not sending Binyamin back. It is only later when they start again, to starve, that he says, okay, go back there. And they say, no, we can't go back there unless we go to Binyamin. It's very important to notice that the only person that succeeds in convincing Yaakov is Yehuda. It will be Yehuda that says, I will be a guarantor for Binyamin. Because this is the beginning of a long play. The play between Yehuda and the kingdom that comes out of Yehuda, which is ultimately David, and the kingdom that will come out of Yosef and Binyamin. And so for Yehuda to say that I will guarantee for Binyamin is setting the seeds for the harmony of these two sons. The sons of Leah and the sons of Rachel. Because it is the sons of Rachel demonstrated in Yosef 
He was able to organize Olam Hazeh. But it will be the talents of the sons of Leah to bring about the spiritual redemption. Mashiach ben Yosef is a physical redemption, a national redemption. And the sons of Leah is a spiritual redemption. And all those two redemptions have to work. And remember, they thought Yosef was Esau, which is Olam Hazen. But it's Yosef that is able to use Olam Hazen in service of Olam Haba. So Yehuda says, I'll take the son. <clears throat> now, again, we have this very interesting hint over here, because it says in verse 8, V'yomi Yehuda el Israel, Aviv, Shilcha nar iti v'nekuma v'nelecha v'nichyeh. Give me the lad with me, and we will get up, we will go, and we will live. Velo namut, and we will not die. Narach, she says, Nitznitzabo ruach hakodesh. Ruach hakodesh again sparkled through his lips without him knowing what he was saying, and said, Through our going there, your spirit will be revived, because you will see Yosef. Now again, why does Midrash do that? I mean, you could just leave it alone. We will go and we will live. And for the Midrash to say, and he really, once again, a spirit of divine inspiration came through him and he prophesied something. Again, we're seeing over here the choices of man are revealing the hidden divine plan. And this is going closer and closer as the name Yudkevavka and him come closer and closer to the point where they're able to recognize that the choices of man is fulfilling the decree of God, which is what happens next. Right? They go down there. He's really nice to them. He says, let's eat. And chapter 43, verse 14, just before they go, Yaakov does a similar thing. He says, may El Shaddai give you compassion before this man and may he send you your brothers, Acher, your other brother, Ve'et Binyamin. And Rashi brings down again the Midrash that says that Yaakov had Ruach HaKodesh that was thrown into his mouth and he was referring to Yosef and he said, may you get your brother and he meant Yosef. Right? So again, you see this thing, well, what is going on over here? God is speaking through men all of a sudden. And you're like, you know, it's very strange, but this is exactly the character of these partiot. Because at this point, Hashem's name is becoming closer and closer one, and there's an interfacing of the human choice with the divine decree. Okay, they get down there, and when Yosef sees his brothers in verse 16, he says, bring these people in, utavach tevach, and butcher a butchering. Right? They will eat with me. And the Gemara says in Chulin that he said, butcher the slaughter the animal, but do it in front of them and remove the Gid Hanasheh. And remove the Gid Hanasheh, of course. Right? Because this is the beginning of him supporting them, him feeding them. Right? That he succeeded in using Olam Hazeh to support them, to feed them, which was the fixing of the Gid Hanasheh. Okay, they come and they tell him the whole story about how they found their money in their bags. And 
he says in verse 23, says, Make peace be unto you, Altiro, Elohechem, Velohevach, Avichem, Natanlachem, Matmon, Baamtotechem. He says, Oh, don't worry, your God and the God of your father has done this. He did that. Again, what he did and what God's doing is interface. Okay. So, they come home, they bow down to him, he asks, how's their father doing? Alright. And, he still has one thing that he still has to do. He has to fulfill the decree of Hashem. He has to get his father down here. Okay, he sends them off, and he puts in Binyamin's sack his silver cup. And then he goes running back to them, and he brings Binyamin back, and he accuses them. Okay. Now the oral tradition says, why did he do this to Binyamin? Because he's afraid that the brothers still have not gotten over their anger to the sons of Rachel, and that they might hurt him right, on the way. So he's not completed the whole plan. Then they come back to get to save Binyamin, and we end off with sentence 16. Right? What can we say to you? Ha Elohim, God has found our sin. And they recognize that everything that's happening to them was because of what they did to Yosef. So basically, the Parsha's landing in as man is recognizing how the choices of man is fulfilling the decrees of Hashem. This presentation by Rabbi David Aaron has been brought to you by Israelite, inspiring a renaissance in Jewish living. To access additional presentations from our online media library, order our best-selling books, or learn more about Israelite programming, including seminars, web-based learning, teleconferences, spiritual retreats, Shabbaton experiences, Israel missions, and leadership training, please visit us at www.israelite.org. That's www.israelight.org. You can also call us in New York at 212-947-4990 or in Jerusalem at country code 972-627-4890. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and we look forward to learning with you at Israelite.